it is a pleasure to be here. If you have a Bible, you can be opening to Acts uh, 17. Acts 17, we'll uh, read that together in a moment. Uh, and uh, it is a pleasure to particularly be here with PCC. Uh, my wife and I, we sort of lead a gypsy lifestyle. We have a home in Oregon. We have a home here. I got around the Bay Area a lot speaking. I travel all over the place internationally quite a lot. So if you see us visiting here occasionally, that's actually because we think we're members here. So forgive us for that. Um, and, uh, you know, this uh, spot in Athens where Paul is preaching in Acts uh, 17, you know, it's called Mars uh, Hill. Linda and I have visited there, and I'll tell you, it was one of the most spiritually moving moments of my life when I stood on that spot that Paul preached this sermon. And I know uh, Gary and Anna are going and visiting there uh, uh, later this uh, year on their sabbatical break, and I challenged uh, uh, Gary to get a great sermon ready to preach from this spot right on the spot on Mars Hill. So if you could stand with me and let's read this uh, together. You know, Acts 17. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day, and those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler? Right? You ever feel like a babbler when you're talking to people in the marketplace or in the school place? What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagos, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? And this is a spot, Mars Hill is where this is occurring now. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you're religious. He meets them where they're at. Right? For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you this day. In the marketplace, babblers, right, influencing them. Thank you. May God bless the reading of his holy word. A little bit more about Pat Gelsinger. I've had a Cinderella career. You know, I was born and raised as a farm boy on the East uh, Coast, sort of stumbled into a uh, one, a uh, tech degree. So I was, uh, you know, skipped my last year and a half of high school, got an associate's degree at Lincoln Tech, and Intel came recruiting. So here I am, 18 years old. I've never been on an airplane, and Intel invites me for my first plane trip to California to interview. What do you think I said? You know, two nanoseconds, boom, I'm on the plane. But I told my mom and dad before I left, I said, they're crazy out in California. I'm not moving there. Right? So, but sure enough, you know, yeah, you are folks sort of crazy. But, uh, but uh, uh, Intel offered me a job and made it that I could work and go to school. And uh, so I was a technician, and I uh, wanted to finish my bachelor's. They paid for that, my master's. I did my Santa Clara for my bachelor's, master's at Stanford. was working on my Ph.D. at uh, Stanford, you know, working and going to full uh, school full-time. You know, I became a design engineer on the, uh, at the end of the 8286 project. Any of you remember the 286, right? Yeah, a few of you do. And I've worked on every processor since the 286. So if any of you have used the computer in the last 30 years, I worked on it, 
right? So, uh, you know, I just have had this incredible uh, career. Uh, when I uh, was uh, about to uh, go finish my PhD at Stanford, I had been working there. So I resigned from Intel and was going to go full-time at Stanford for my PhD. And Andy Grove, the legendary uh, leader uh, in the Bay Area, he comes to me and he says, so you can go there and learn on the simulator or you can stay here and fly the jet. And at uh, 24 years old, he made me the design manager of the 8046. I mean, you know, extraordinary, right? You know, I was the youngest person on the design team, and I'm in charge, right, of getting what arguably could be the most important uh, chip uh, in the industry at the time, so a huge uh, break in my career, and, uh, you know, rose through the ranks and became CTO uh, for Intel. And a CTO, if you've ever, have you ever heard of USB? We did that. Have you ever heard of Wi-Fi? We did that, right? So any of those technologies I've worked on in my career, after 30 years, and literally you know, 30 years at the same company, right, uh, in, uh, EMC came recruiting and asked me to consider going to join them on the East Coast. And, you know, 30 years, I mean, I don't even know where I ended and Intel started but had this uh, opportunity to go, and you know, Joe Tucci, the uh, CEO there, was like, you know, we're going to make you better, and we're going to give you the opportunity to advance. So we made this life dramatic change to go to Boston for three years. My family thought, ah, oh, the black sheep is finally coming home. So they were excited, you know, Boston, and, you know, and then was there for three years, and then was given this opportunity to come and take over at VMware. And uh, so Linda and I make the move back across the nation. My parents are, you know, he's gone again, right, that black sheep, right, and uh, become a CEO for VMware. You know, and VMware is a fabulous uh, company, a recognized a leader in so many uh, uh, areas in the, uh, you know, software industry, number four software company in the world now at uh, $6.5 billion or so uh, in revenue, you know, great customer satisfaction. We do this thing called virtualization software, which if you don't know what that means, don't worry about it, right? You know, if you touch a Cloud, we're probably in it, uh, and uh, just a, you know an incredible uh, company uh, that uh, we have, and we have about 19,000 employees now. You know, headquarters is down in uh, Palo Alto, and as I describe it, I'm the senior pastor of the church of VMware. Because the senior pastor, what are the, you know, he's, you know, Gary's worried about the health of the congregation, of the church, of the corporate body. He's also worried about each individual and the families of each uh, individual and the community that you're participating in. What am I? I'm worried about the health of VMware as a corporation, as an institution, but also the people and the families that they're in as well. You know, one time I said that, I said, you know, I'm the senior pastor of the Church of VMware, and John Orkberg was sitting here in front, the senior pastor at Menlo Park, and he sort of shouts out, and he says, you know, if I paid my congregants as much as you do, I'd get more showing up too. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> So VMware, and one of the things, and I'll just say to you know, each of you who are a leader, that the most important thing I get to do, or any leader gets to do, is the values of the institution that you get to represent. And the VMware values, we call ourselves an epic company, right? You know, we are, right, have epic people, we have epic products, we have epic partners and epic customers. Execution, we get stuff done. You know, passion, we do these disruptive, innovative technologies that we're passionate about. Integrity, we have the highest integrity in everything that we do. We're committed to make our customers successful 
And finally, we're going to make the communities that we're in better. Epic two company. Now, when I get to talk about our values internally inside of the company, you know, it's like I'm giving a sermon without scripture. Because where do these basis of values and doing the right thing for customers and investing in communities and the highest integrity come from? Boy, scriptural principles. And for any of you who are business leaders, the values that you set in the business environment and the values that you expect are the most powerful and the most enduring things that you get to do. So that's a little bit about Pat as the business leader. So let's talk a little bit about Pat as the Christian leader. And, uh, you know, I, uh, when I first moved to California, 18 years old, and I had gone to church every Sunday, uh, and, uh, you know, there was good reason to go to church. One was to meet girls, and the second was to impress the mothers and the grandmothers of the girls that I wanted to meet. So, right, you know, so, and, right, of course, if I didn't go, my dad would whoop me, so I went to church every Sunday. So uh, when I got to California, what did I do? I went to church. What did I do? I met a girl, right? You know, it's all working. This is good, right? Uh, so, and I was, but I met Linda, and uh, the first Sunday at church at Santa Clara Christian Church, and I was on the 10-year plan to matrimony. I was going to finish my bachelor's, finish my master's, finish my Ph.D., probably do postdoc work before thinking about getting married. And, you, you know, that was good. You know, I made it very clear to Linda that was my plan, but we started to date and get to know each other. Well, even before we dated, she invited me over for Christmas dinner in 1979, my first Christmas in, you know, California. I didn't know many people, right? I had no money to go back east, and Christmas was always a big deal to our family. So she invited me to Christmas Eve dinner, and it was Linda, her mom, and her grandmother. You know, three generations of good cooks, right? What do I got to lose, right? Worst, I get a decent meal out of the evening. So I go, and, you know, we have a great uh, evening, and in particular, Grandma and I hit it off great, right? You know, we're sort of playing games and stuff like that, and Grandma and I are just really connected. I leave that night. Grandma closes the door, turns to Linda, and said, he's the one first night she ever met me, right? We're not dating or anything, and Linda starts to enumerate my, my failures of many, right? You know, no, yeah, right? But grandma was like, you know, most of us have a weak cell phone connection to God. Grandma had a high bandwidth broadband connection to God. So, so Linda was like way concerned that grandma was so definitive that he was the one. But I was on the 10-year plan to matrimony. Well, God had a different plan. Linda had endometriosis, had surgery, had one over removed, part of the second one removed, and basically the uh, doctor said, kids now or never. I'm on the 10-year plan, kids now or never. And we're just dating. We weren't engaged or anything like that, so, you know, a point of crisis in my life. We decide to uh, get married. Uh, three months after we got married, she got pregnant with Elizabeth. We named her Elizabeth after the mother of uh, John the Baptist from the barren womb. And then, uh, hey, that part of one over seemed to do just fine. Elizabeth, Josiah, Nathan, Micah, hey, you know, you know, the man with the quiver is full of them. He is blessed. So I was working full-time. I was going to school full-time. And now I had a family full-time. And that was really the basis of the book, The Juggling Act. And, you know, you could take a look at it. But, you know, how do you make those things fit? How do you, you know, live in the God-given priorities of God, family, work, when everything about our egos and this valley say work, family, God? 
And how do you make them fit on a basis? So that's Pat the author and speaker on faith. You know, we're also deeply committed to a life of radical philanthropy. Soon after we got married, you know, we committed, you know, we were good Christian folks, so 10% of, you know, what was left over we gave to God. And we heard the speaker speak, and he was the dad of the uh, uh, church that we were going, of the pastor of the church we were going to, and he said, talked about their philanthropic policy, and he said they were giving an increasing percentage of their gross income to God every year. So Linda and I became convicted about that, so we started giving 10% of our gross income and committed to give another percent every year since then. That was almost 35 years ago, 10 plus 35, and now we're giving almost 50% of our gross income to philanthropy. I challenge each of you to a life of radical philanthropy. I'm passionate about what I do in the workplace. If you want to really get me excited, let me tell you about the things that we're doing, the almost 300 churches that we've helped plant, the almost 10,000 kids that are now part of the Compassion Churches that we've planned, the 12,000-plus kids that we have now in schools in Nairobi, uh, Africa, that were slum kids, and the other philanthropic efforts. I challenge each of you to live a life of radical philanthropy in your finances, in your time, in your person and character. But as a CEO, I'm also given these huge uh, opportunities to be visible for my faith as well. And we'll touch on a few more of those. And each of us as Christians are called to be visible for our faith in ways. And finally, being a mentor and influencing the lives of others. Soon after, uh, you know, I was working on the 386 uh, at uh, Intel. And, uh, you know, I'm just, you know, things are going great. Uh, my job is going fabulously. And I uh, you know, had an opportunity to present to the executive staff of Intel. And this is Gordon Moore, Moore's Law, you know, Robert Noyce, you know, the you know, uh, Nobel Prize winning inventor of the integrated circuit, Andy Grove, you know, the legendary leader, right? You know, wow, what an audience. And I'm presenting to them. And uh, basically, I chewed them out. Right, I'm this like 23-year-old kid chewing out the gods of the tech industry because the computers weren't working. You need to fix these computers or I can't get my chip out the door. What a, a precocious little brat I was. <laughs> a couple of days later, my phone rings. And I pick up the phone. Who is it? I didn't want to be interrupted. Right, Andy. Andy who? Andy Grove. Ah. Right, you know, this is the Time Magazine Man of the Year, right, founder, legendary leader, and that began a mentoring relationship that lasted for 30 years. And I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for people like Andy Grove investing deeply in my life. And I would ask you the question, who are you investing in and who do you have investing in your life to be everything that you could be, an all-in mentor? Now, why do I believe? You know, soon... After I moved to California, remember, you know, I had two purposes in going to church, right? Meet girls and impress their parents, right? So I did that, one here at church. And this wasn't, you know, a nice church. This is a Bible believing in the word. And the sermon topic in February 1980 was Revelation 3, 15, and 16. I know your deeds that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. But since you're neither cold nor hot but lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And that day, that sermon convicted me because I was just showing up to look good. Right? And I decided that day I had to make a decision to be hot or cold. And in February of 1980, I became a committed, hot-for-God 
Christian. Because I believe I too need a savior, right? Where I'm a decrepit person, right, destroyed by sin. And I too need to come back, right, to a loving, godly father. You know, and I, 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 get, you know, I get to be shoulder to shoulder with people that lots of you won't be. You know, people like Bill Gates and Andy Grove and Larry Ellison. You know, that's part of my community. You know, Steve Jobs. I got to witness multiple times of Steve Jobs in his life. And so that's part of my network that I get to be an all-in Christian for. I challenge each of you, who's part of your network? Right. Who are those people that you can uniquely influence? And are you coming here today because you like to look good and impress some mothers and grandmothers? Or are you here because you're hot for Jesus Christ? I'll tell you, and I have seen him faithful in my life. You know, I'm a farm boy from Pennsylvania. And now I'm a leader of one of the world's great technology companies. Why? Right? You know, I was at a family reunion with my dad. He has uh, uh, nine brothers and brothers-in-laws, and I look around the table, right, and not one of my uncles, they're all farmers, you know, pig farmers, cow farmers, dairy farmers, and so on in the family, not one of my uncles has all their fingers. So if I need to just feel blessed, I just hold up all my fingers, and I just look at them and say, yeah, it's okay, Right? You know, we are such extraordinary blessed. The miracles he's done in my life, the four children that we've seen from that uh, barren womb from Linda, three times I've been face-to-face with uh, demons. You know, I have a prodigal son who for four years had nothing to do with us and is now back in relationship. Still a long way to go, but he's back in relationship with our family. And in fact, uh, just on Friday, my uh, son, uh, Josiah, uh, they believe he has Hodgkin's uh, lymphoma as well. And I know that God is going to be faithful just as he has been in every circumstance as we've walked today. So I challenge you, are you hot or cold for God today? Now, being a CEO is a wonderful, terrible assignment. It's a lonely position, right? And uh, I have a prayer partner, uh, Gregory, and uh, you know, we pray and we fast together on Thursdays uh, every week. It's a great uh, habit, you know, spiritual discipline, right, to do that. And he always prays, may Pat, may you be like Daniel. And if you need one person in Scripture to model your life after in all of Scripture, Daniel's the one. Under three different pagan kings, Daniel rose up to be number two. I mean, that's like becoming the vice president when a Democrat was in office, when a Republican was in office, and becoming number two in the Chinese, right, to, you, know, uh, you know, ruling party. Yeah, can you believe it? Under three things. And they could find no fault in him. May you be like Daniel. We're some of the wealthiest people on earth. To use every single resource to whom much is given, much will be required. And to balance and to keep a living a life of purpose, commitment, and balance, that the God-given priorities are God, family, work. And everything wants to have work, family, God. Now, you know, I've written books on this, right? You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an expert, right? So in October, Linda and I had one of those conversations where he, she basically said, you are messed up, Pat, right? And it's like, you know, I, I wrote the book. How can you say that, right? Yeah. <laughs> Wisdom is learning the lessons you thought you already knew, right? Because these positions, these jobs, these opportunities that we have are so demanding and consuming, and our egos want to pour more into it. The job wants more of us, and soon you're entirely out of balance yet again. 
Right? One of the things I talk about in the book is the at-home chart. Right? For us engineer types, keeping score. So we'd have a score chart where you know, if I was home by 6.15, that was one point. If I was home by 5, that was two points. After 6.15 was zero points. Right? Gone on weekends was negative points. That's the numerator. The denominator was the number of work days. And my secretary every month would send the spreadsheet on how we're doing at home. Can you believe it, right? Yeah, we have almost 30 years of history of the skew, the mean, the average, the running average of you know, the at-home chart, right? You know, yeah, I'm a goal-oriented guy, right? You know, right? But do things to keep you in balance every step along the way. And finally, you will be tested. And you know, I've had an incredible network of friends praying for me, given the visible and influential role that I'm in. You know, the opportunities of this last year have been some of the most challenging of my career. And there have been rumors of Dell and EMC, uh, or of EMC and HP merging, of VMware been spun out, VMware being spun in, right? A Dell merger acquisition uh, collapsed the uh, joint uh, venture, right? Uh, executive uh, departures. And, you know, this is sort of like, you know, the stock price of your company. This is sort of like the fourth quarter score of a star quarterback, right? So how do you think I'm doing? Yeah, I'm a failure, right? Down 30%, lost 10 plus billion dollars of market cap for our shareholders. What do you think? Is this a fun time? Yeah, look, look, there's a little blip positive at the end there. So I, feel, I can feel good this week. We had a good earnings call this week so I can smile more. Yeah, but that's what my last nine months has been, right? And as Christians in the workplace, you will be tested along the way, right? And that's the promise. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But as you're going through those times of testing, is your God surprised? Was God asleep and did he forget that this Dell EMC merger was going to screw up my life? Right? Did he forget that I was still the CEO here and I'm one of his chosen and that he shouldn't be sending me through such difficult periods? Did he forget? My God is on the throne. You learn and grow in times of change and challenge. When we're successful, how much do we grow? Not at all, right? Our egos were so positive. You know, look at me, I'm good. When you fail and are challenged, that's when you grow and develop. And those are the times we need to embrace and put our arms around and thank you, God, for the opportunities that you are bringing into my life. So everybody stand up right now, stand up. Because when you're going through these periods of test and challenge, number one thing to do is, my God is on the throne. He said, I am great. And so are you. So we're going to do that. My God is on the throne. He said, I am great. And so are you. Okay, let's do it one more time and pick somebody you're going to turn to. And with a little bit more vigor, with a little bit more vigor, and so are you. My God is on the throne. He said, I am great. And so are you. Okay, thank you. You can sit down again. Now, the first spiritual crisis in my life was in February of 1980 when I first came to Christ. The second spiritual crisis of my life was shortly thereafter. And here I am, I'm a baby Christian, just a couple months old, and God starts putting on my heart to go into full-time ministry. 
Right, so here, you know, I'm being successful at Intel. I mean, my classes are going great. I'm loving this. You know, you know, microprocessor design. You know, I'm a pig in a mud puddle. I'm as happy as can be. And God says, go into full-time ministry. And I'm like, no, God, I don't want to be like Gary Gadini. Anything but that. <laughs> and I started wrestling with God, and I'm wrestling for two, three months. And finally I said, okay, God, I give up. And I laid a fleece before God like Gideon, and I said, if this happens, I will go into full-time ministry. And as soon as I laid that fleece before God, the answer came back, the workplace is your ministry. And Colossians 3, 23 and 24 became my life work. Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that you receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So how many of you are full-time ministers? Okay, let's try this one more time, right? All right. Work heartily as for the Lord and not for, the, not for men, knowing that you receive the reward of the inheritance. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. Some of us are called to be vocational ministers. The rest of us are called to be marketplace, home place, school place, workplace ministers. So let's try this again. How many of you are full-time ministers? Amen, you're getting the opinion. They're, you know, they're better, right? They're better, Garrett. You, you said they wouldn't get it, but... Uh, <laughs> the workplace is your ministry. And you are called to full-time ministry in the home place, in the marketplace, in the school place, wherever you are. And this passage from, you know, Paul is just great. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Right? It's the people he ran into in the day by day. Those are the ones he interacted with and ministered to along the way. You know, your number one evangelism tool, and I'll just challenge you with this, you know, how do you evangelize in the workplace, right? And just one-on-one find ways to present your faith in the most casual, easy, right, unobtrusive ways possible. And the one that would be is you're meeting with somebody, they mention some need or some illness or something else in the life. You just say, may I pray for you? Right? Can I pray for your sick son? Is that okay? You know, and I've never had an atheist or agnostic say, no, you can't pray for me. Can you believe that? You don't even believe in this. Why are you letting me pray for you? They never say no. And then a couple weeks later, you come back and say, so how is your sick son doing? Anyway, I've been praying for him. Right? And I'll just tell you, just open up these ways, just one-on-one, to be able to present your faith in whatever situation that you are in. You know, be a full-time minister in the home place, the marketplace, the school place, wherever you are. One of the reasons that I believe God helped bring Linda and I back to the Bay Area was to do this thing called TBC. And I am just thrilled, you know, with uh, uh, Gary and the relationship. Gary joins with me in the board of the TBC because in coming here, it was, you know, can we bring workplace leaders and church and paraministry leaders together to change this city. And I love this passage in Jeremiah 29, 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. Now think about that, where I have sent you. Are you in exile? You bet we are, right? You know, our home is in heaven. You know, we are exiles in the Bay Area. And we have been called to come here, and God plants churches to change cities. And as a great an opportunity of being a CEO is 
the greater opportunity to me is to have a lasting impact on the Bay Area. And this is what bore TBC, transforming the Bay uh, with uh, Christ. And the Bay Area, what a magical place on earth. You know, it's 11 different counties, three major cities, ethnically diverse. Over 50% of homes do not speak English at, at home at night right across the Bay Area. More ethnic diversity here than any place in the United States, maybe except for New York City. Just incredible, the melting pot we have here. This is now the richest place on earth. Did you know that? You're part of the wealthiest place on the, the planet Earth today. Ain't that cool? So you're affluent. You know, given the Bay Area technology, it's one of the most influential areas, if not arguably the most influential areas on Earth. It is one of the least churched areas in the nation. And stunningly, it is one of the least philanthropic areas in the nation. Can you believe that? So we're a bunch. Our neighbors are rich, influential, miserly pagans. Your mission field is rich, influential, miserly pagans. What an opportunity. And that's what we are out to do with TBC. And with TBC, we formed this organization. Gary works shoulder to shoulder with me as part of it to catalyze a holistic gospel movement in the Bay Area, to see every person in the Bay Area thrive and flourish in body, soul, and spirit. And we've laid out three strategies to do that that we might unify the Christian leadership of the Bay Area. The first meeting I had pulling together some of the core of it, I had Francis Chan, John Orkberg, and Chip Ingram. Stunningly, they had never met before. Right? So here's this you know, CEO from, the, from uh, Portland, Boston, to the Bay Area, who's convening these three guys who they should be like buddies. First time they ever met. Unified Christian leadership, and just magic happens when we put down all of our differences and we come together serving a single God and the things that we can do. Unify. Second is amplify. This is a post-Christian community, right? The church is one of two things here locally. It is either an evolutionary leftover that I have no need for, or it's a tool of the religious right. In either case, I don't want anything to do with it. And what does Matthew 5 say? By your good deeds, they will glorify your Father in heaven. We will amplify works of service to change the perception of the church here in the Bay Area, that they may see the good deeds they loved more than any other people, that we will amplify works of service. And finally, the goal is multiply. Increase the size of the church, the number of churches. And I'll tell you, I am thrilled with what you know, uh, PCC is doing uh, in this respect, reaching into you know, the city of Redwood City and finding ways to minister and partner uh, in that. You know, I am just thrilled and I'm honored to be part of this. And as a CEO, God has given me a big platform. He's blessed me with much. But to each one of you, he has given you a big platform as well. He has called each of you to be like Daniel. He has called us to be hot for the Lord. And he's called us to be ministers wherever you are. Full-time, on-fire ministers for the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to you for the things that you have blessed us with, honored us with, and used us for. And Father, may we, PCC, make a lasting impact on the Bay Area that your name will be famous. In the name of Christ, amen.
listening to the Peninsula Covenant Church Podcast. We're located at 3560 Farm Hill Boulevard in Redwood City, California. You can reach us online at www.peninsulacovenant.com.